This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 185 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us this week is Pierre Noel, Managing Director for Europe at Estari, a company providing global cyber resilience services for businesses. Pierre Noel has enjoyed a remarkably broad professional career, with time spent at IBM, KPMG, Microsoft, and Huawei in both deeply technical and business roles. He shares his insights on the ways culture impacts security, the importance of threat intelligence if your organization is ready for it, and why he believes things are likely to get a lot worse before they get better. Stay with us. By design, I'm a deep techie, but I'm, I'm quite old now, so I have started uh, the 30 plus years ago. So initially, I went very deep into technologies. I, I worked with IBM on creating the first uh, version of AIX, uh, worked on, on the, op- the operating system, the kernel level. Then I got very much attracted into um, information security, especially because I found out that information security people were meant to, th- to think differently than the, the standard IT people. And again, we are talking about 30 years ago. Uh, and I got dragged into information security. I got very, very, very technical on information security. I participated to the Open Software Foundation and uh, in that community, I worked a little bit on Kerberos 5. Uh, so I added some small element into Kerberos 5, again, long, long time ago. And then I evolved into better understanding business, uh, moving to uh, towards understanding the link between information security and the business side, more precisely risk management, enterprise risk management. I've been very fortunate to find a few mentors, people who really taught me to be better, uh, to be better as a potential business person as an entrepreneur. I built two organizations, uh, one which we sold to uh, uh, an American telecommunication company and the second one which we sold to uh, IBM. And so I'm, I'm continued into my evolution. I was very much into enterprise risk management and then my good friend at Microsoft were quite interested for me to consider working with them and I love them. And so I accepted the role of uh, chief security officer for the Asian time zone at Microsoft, which was a wonderful time where I had not only to handle technical and sophisticated problem, but also to help emerging countries to address the emerging cybersecurity issues. Truly wonderful time. Then I became the CISO of a very well-known company uh, that is uh, Huawei, the Chinese company. I was the worldwide CISO and uh, chief privacy officer uh, for the enterprise uh, at Huawei, where I learned a great deal on uh, how to operate into a Chinese organization, which was completely different from my experience in in operating in non-Chinese organization. Then um, Hmm. after some time, I got a little bit uh, bored let's say, to uh, to working with Huawei. I moved to Switzerland. In Switzerland, I built a community, an information sharing community with all the Swiss finance uh, community, about 100 organizations across Switzerland. And we started sharing information above and beyond what a typical ISAC, uh, information sharing and analysis center would do. And uh, and then I got convinced to uh, join uh, Istari, which is the company I'm working for right now. Uh, I've been with Istari for five months. Istari is a brand-brand 
new organization. It, it's a different type of organization. And, and from my experience, I concluded that this is exactly the type of organization we needed to have. So the very moment I learned about uh, history and about what it was all about, I was really adamant to join. And, and, and so, so it is. So I'm now the managing directors for Europe, Middle East, Africa, uh, and a little bit for USA at uh, history. But can you give us some insights? So what is your day-to-day like? What, what takes up your time these days? Well, my day-to-day, uh, I have to divide my time in between uh, three things. One is to manage my wonderful team, as any manager would have to do. Another one is we have a community of members. Some would call that client. I prefer to call them members. These are very big organizations all over the world with which we have decided to have a very close trusted relationship. And so a certain amount of my time is to engage with this community, try to understand what's going on, try to understand the emerging problem, try to understand what's happening over the horizon as well as the most immediate problems. So that's one big aspect of my, of my time. Another aspect of my time is Istari is also investing into cybersecurity and overall digital risks organizations. So I spend quite some time talking uh, with emerging organizations in the digital risk slash cybersecurity field, talking with venture capital, talking with thought leaders, talking with regulators, trying to understand what is happening, what is relevant, trying to create an ecosystem, if you will, of, of organizations in which we can invest and also trying to understand the need for today, tomorrow and the next six months uh, on, um, on the typical customer side. You know, it strikes me that uh, with your experience, you have uh, you have something that I think a lot of people don't, which is a real view of the global situation when it comes to cybersecurity. Your your experience has taken you around the world, literally, and I'm curious what insights you can share about that experience. I mean, are, are having been to different parts of the world and seen the way that different cultures approach cybersecurity. Are there lessons that you've learned there? Are there important take-homes that you can share? Oh, that's an extremely good point you make. Well, first, let me just share a little bit. I, I, I'm very hopeful to sit on the board of advisor of Airbus, you know, the uh, avionic and, and space and defense organization. I've been sitting on this star community, as they call it, for, for many years. And the reason why they invited me is because they said, I understand cyber. I work for an American company. I'm a European person. I'm, I'm a Belgian guy from heritage. And they, uh, I lived 30 years, well, nearly 30 years in Asia. So I've got a very good understanding of what's happening on a worldwide basis when it comes to digital risk cybersecurity. So you're quite Quite spot on. Well, what I found out is, well, the risks are the same. I mean, I have worked with the, um, if you will, the equivalent of the CISO of the Chinese government when I was uh, working at Microsoft. And I found out that this gentleman has exactly the same problem as any other CISO anywhere in the world, in any other country or any other enterprise. He's faced with exactly the same problem. So the problem we're faced with are the same. The difference, if you will, resides in the sophistication. Some organizations, some countries are way more sophisticated than others. For some, we could speak about bits and bytes issues. For others, we are talking about just to learn to walk and not certainly not to learn to run. And, and the other thing that is critical to me is the difference of culture, also at the organization level. I, I found out, and, and I have, you know, 
wounds all over my body to prove it because I found it out the hard way. I, I found out that you cannot take something that works in one culture and pluck it into another culture and hope that it will work the same way. It's not true. Cyber information security is as much psychology as it is technology. As I usually say, behind every cybersecurity incident, you have a human being, either because you have an attacker attacking us for whatever reason, either because we made a mistake, a human mistake in the way we try to uh, to, uh, to configure, to uh, uh, deploy our security at the organization. And so it's very important to integrate the cultural aspect to make sure that a message is done, is is propagated the right way, make sure that, that people, you know, synchronize and, and, and there is some crystallization uh, around some problems. And the way it works in USA, it's not the way it works in Korea. It's not the way it works in Germany and so on and so on. So my experience told me that the problems are usually the same, but the way you address them varies and you've got to be very cognizant on, on this cultural aspect to be able to do it the right way. Yeah. You know, it strikes me. I wonder if, if a good, uh, analogy is is sort of the car industry you know they, we have car manufacturing all over the world but uh, some people prefer a car made in germany other people prefer a car made in england or one in france or, or the u.s you know that yeah. they each of those cultures brings their own unique sensibilities to the process of designing and manufacturing automobiles is there a similar sort of thing in cyber yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, the, in in some in some organizations, you are in a position where you can instruct everyone on what to do. In other organizations, even in the same industry, you just cannot do that because the culture will push back and people will uh, ignore you. So, in in some places, yeah, very very similar to your automobile um, uh, analogy, you know. Um, some people would like a big truck. Some people would like a very lightweight French car and whatnot. So in, in cybersecurity, I really found out that you just cannot come and say, well, it worked in my bank in USA. Therefore, it's going to work in my bank in Japan. Well, no, it's not going to work the same way. <laughs> I want to get your take on threat intelligence and, yes. and the part that you think that it plays in an organization's defenses. Well, threat intelligence is is critical once you have reached a certain level of sophistication. A mistake some people make is that they jump straight into uh, threat intelligence, whereas they do not have the basic right. So that, that is a mistake. Threat intelligence is something, I repeat myself, critical, but you have to have a good need for it. I, I, see, I see this organization at two levels. I see organizations that are sophisticated and have a capability to absorb threat intelligence because they've got their own threat intelligence officer and whatnot. And I see organizations that have reached a, a level of maturity where they see the value of threat intelligence, it's actionable to them, but they do not have the capability to absorb, in which case they need a threat intelligence that is a little bit more digested for them. But so if, if I have to summarize, I would say I see three categories, organizations that are not yet in a stage where threat intelligence could benefit them, and we still have a lot of them, organizations that are in the stage where threat intelligence could benefit them, and we are talking about a peer-to-peer -peer discussion that is someone like Recorded Future can feed information to the threat intelligence officer. He, she knows what to do with that. And you also have this category of an organization. They will benefit from um, 
actionable information, but you have to give them the information in a very precise way. You should not expect them to do investigation by themselves. You have to tell them, you know, through through a book, okay, this is page one, this is what you have to do, this is page two, this is what you have to do, and so on. So we've got the three categories, at least from my understanding of the market right now, this is what I see. Are organizations typically self-aware when it comes to you know, understanding where they are in that journey? Oh, God, no. Oh, no. No, <laughs> no. Usually they're not, yes. But again, the, the the mistake or the fault might reside on the threat intelligence companies because, of course, the purpose of a business company is to offer uh, its services or technology, so they try to reach out to as many people. Let, let, me, let me take the example of Switzerland. Wonderful country. The finance industry in Switzerland, wonderful people, truly wonderful people. Well, however, I would not qualify that every organization, finance organization in Switzerland is at the level where they can really receive threat intelligence and make it actionable. Some of these finance organizations are at a, at a stage where they have to do other things that are more priority, higher priority, in order to ensure that they have a decent uh, cybersecurity protection before they look at threat intelligence. Yet, the threat intelligence people, the salespeople would contact them and tell them that if they had threat intelligence in place, of course, the environment would be significantly more secure. That's not true, but hey, fair enough. They're trying to position their technologies. I respect that. But, but definitely, these organizations, by and large, are not ready. And if they receive threat intelligence, they won't know what to do with that. You know, again, you know, getting back to the experience that you have, it, it seems to me that um, you have the ability to translate between different people in different worlds. You know, you have a deep technical understanding, but you also understand the business side of things. Yes. Um, and I think that's a, a valuable and, and a rare thing to find out there. I mean, I, I suppose you, you've certainly found that to be to your advantage. Well, I must admit, yes. Um, I think I've been extremely lucky at, at the moment when I dug deep enough on the technical side that I found that Perhaps there was no point going any deeper, but it was time to understand the motivation behind it. And I started going into better understanding the business and, and the risk management at the enterprise. So I think I, I, have, I have been extremely lucky. I also recognize that many cybersecurity experts, even at the CISO level, do, did not have that opportunity, did not have that chance. And, and there is definitely across the community a need to enlighten, that's probably not the right word, but expose our wonderful cybersecurity people to other parts of, of the business, other parts of the problem, so that they can understand where cybersecurity fits, and they can also understand to communicate themselves a, a little bit better. I've got a, a good a good experience. Again, one of these experiences that gave me a, a wound somewhere on my body. I, mm. I worked with an airline organization several years ago. I worked for the IT department of that airline, airline organization, and we started looking at the risks, at the cybersecurity incident that could happen, and we started identifying many cybersecurity incidents potential incident, that is, risks. And so we thought, oh my God, this is really important. We absolutely have to go to the board and tell them about that problem. And so we built our our, uh, our landscape of the risks and this big risk that we should not tolerate, this risk that 
yeah, they're really bad and this risk that somewhat. Okay, so we were really gone ho And we went to the board and we exposed what we had found out in order for the board to understand that cybersecurity was really important. And you know what? The board laughed at us. They looked at us and said, well, thank you very much. But what you consider to be a big risk in the context of your cybersecurity, in my context of an airline where a plane could crash and people could die, this is nothing. So I learned the hard way that if you want to be understood, you've got to align your message with what's happening across the organization or across the country. But you have to elevate your message and realize that what is critical for you might not be necessarily understood by by the other people in the organization. And that doesn't mean they are dumb and you are bright. That might mean that you are missing some element into the multidimensional aspect of, of, of the business. And so there is a clear need for CISO and cybersecurity practitioners to be humble and, and to realize that we have to integrate what we know and what we do in the context of an organization, in the context of something larger. And there is a need for us to speak in a language that can be understood by these people who by and large see us as wizards. You know, these people who speak a strange language, we don't have a clue of what they do, but well, they seem to know what they're doing. And and, and that that's where the communication ends. I think this is a problem that needs to be addressed. Like I said, I've been extremely lucky that I have been given the opportunity to look at both sides of the world, if you will, and I've been able to do my best to merge them, but this is badly missing. As we look ahead towards the future, as, as you look toward the horizon, are you are you optimistic in the direction that we're headed? Do you think we're we're on a good path? Oh no, of course not. <laughs> it's going to get exponentially worse before it gets any better. No, no, no. We are. It's it's terrible. It's awful. I mean, the best we could do, the best we could do, is to remain just one page ahead. But usually, we don't. Uh, we human being, we are very optimistic people by essence, or optimistic animal. So if if you show me something negative and something positive, most of us will remember the positive one and will tend to forget the negative one. So if if you come to someone and say there is 20% chance that this plane is going to crash or you're going to have an accident with a car. Yeah, but there is 80% chance I'll be okay. Well, yes, there is 80% chance you'll be okay. So if, if you look at a different, looking pure, purely from a technology point of view, if you look at these technologies that we, humanity, have adopted over the past 30, 40 years, we did not really adopt this technology with our eyes wide open. In fact, we adopted these technologies because they were cool. <laughs> and that was probably <laughs> one of the main motivation. And now you, you see that we are going into a world of intensive IOTs. Uh, everybody is talking about 5G and the new revolution. Everybody is talking about self-driving cars. All this is wonderful. But do you really think that a cyber criminal will sit down and not try to monetize from that? Of course they monetize. They want to monetize. And these people are extremely bright. And, and where we see a, a cool technology, something that makes my life easier, cooler, simpler, whatever, they see a way to uh, make money. And, and of course they will continue to do that. And, and that's true for cyber criminal and that's equally true for nation states. Sometimes nation states don't necessarily want to attack you. They want to instill fear in you. 
if if they can make you uncertain about your future, if they can send the right message so that you don't know what may happen tomorrow and so you cannot trust anybody and so on, well, they made that's a success for them. So we, we are not ready for that. We, we as a human being, we as the way we handle risks and we as the way we handle digital risks, digital resilience, we're absolutely not ready. So I'm repeating myself, the best we can do is probably to remain one one page ahead, but things are going to get much worse with the uh, explosion of IoT, explosion of 5G, which will enable a lot of things that we cannot envisage today. Yes, these lot of things will be really cool, but they won't be proper security behind them. So it's going to be a huge mess. Let's have fun. <laughs> Don't you agree? I, I like it. I, I, I cannot disagree, but I I just, I, I have to say, I enjoy the way that you deliver that message uh, with, a, with a chipper voice and a positive <laughs> What else can we do? You're, you're a realist. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I'm with you. Our thanks to Pierre Noel from Istari for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Music.